Okay, this morning I'm just going to read some scriptures and then we'll see what God has for us. This, first I'm going to read from Hosea, the second chapter, and this is where God has raised up uh, the prophet Hosea. And we'll see where, how he, where and how he is speaking to them and how and he had him, as in Hosea, he had him marry Goma and she was a prostitute, and he had to marry. And that was a picture of what God was saying to, to the nation of Israel. Although he was married to her, she was acting the part of a prostitute, going out from him and giving herself to others. And we can see the whole result of that. Now in Hebrews, yeah, in Hebrews, in Hosea, the second chapter, it says in verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will draw her in and bring her into the wilderness and speak to her heart comfortably. I'll speak tender, comfortable words to her heart. Verse 15 is where we want to get to. And I will give her vineyards. And of course, that always spoke of unbelievable blessings of God being poured out. I will give her vineyards from there. Where? Right in the midst of the wilderness. I'm going to give her that. And the valley of Achor, it says, the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt, which is, again, Egypt is the type of the world system where he took her out and then well, allures her and brings her into the wilderness so that he can bless her and, with these vineyards and be a door of hope. Now we see, in, by the time we get to the fourth chapter of Hosea in verse 1, it says, Hear the word of the Lord. We see that complete sevenfold hearing and blessing of hearing the word and submitting to it in Revelations chapters 2 and 3 to us as the church. But here he's speaking through the prophet Hosea to his people Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Reason. Because there is no truth, no mercy, no knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing, in committing adultery, they break out, and blood touches blood. Therefore will the land mourn, and everyone that dwells therein will languish, with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also will be taken away, getting involved in all of this that man has done unto Satan. Verse 4, Yet let no man strive, nor reprove one another, for they... For your people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore will you fall in the day, and the prophet also will fall with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. Verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Again, here, it's not that they didn't have the truth and didn't have the knowledge. It's that they refused to submit to it. It's not that they didn't hear it. They just refused to do it. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. See, there it is. You've rejected it. I will also reject you that you will be no priest to me, seeing you have forgotten the law of the, 
of, of your God, I will also forget your children. You can follow this all the way down through, but it has a very beautiful ending, and it will when Christ does come back to establish his kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and we will see that in Revelation, the 20th chapter. But here you're going to see, and we see that because man has lost his hope or doesn't realize and experience it and what effect it has on all of creation. And that's what it goes into in the fourth chapter here. Now we can see this and we see this uh, clearly in Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans chapter eight, verse 19 says, for the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. Notice it's hope here. Notice again in Hosea 2 and verse 15, they were going to be in the valley of Achor, but in the midst of that, and we'll see the meaning of Achor, in the midst of that there would be a door of hope. There'd be a door. And again here in 8.20 for the... uh, in Romans 8, 24, the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by the reason of him who subjected the same in hope. Verse 21, because the creature itself will, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. Gonna, Christ, when he comes back, is gonna, he's going to bring back the dominion that the first Adam lost. That will affect every human being and all creation, all the animal, all, all kind of creation. It will affect. For verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even you, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, but what a man sees. Why does he yet hope? But if we hope for that we see not, then we do. We do it with patience and we wait for it with the patience of God's love. Now, again, in John, when you read John the 10th chapter and he's the shepherd, he's the good shepherd there in John 10, 11 and 14. He's the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13 and verse 20. We see that very clearly. And in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, he's the chief shepherd. He's that one shepherd in Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, verses 9 through 12. He is that shepherd. And he's the door in John 10, 7 and 9. He is the door of the sheep. And they go in him and through him to God and they fought through him and they find that green pasture that is brought out in Psalm the 23rd chapter. And you can see those beautiful six verses there. Then when the Lord is our shepherd and he's shepherding us in the midst of the wilderness, having taken us out of Egypt, he's constantly leading us through the door that he is and it's a door of hope. And we know that in Romans the fifth chapter, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by complete dependence upon Christ, 
We see that being justified, cleared of all guilt and condemnation. We have peace because in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, Christ is our peace. He's won that peace for us through the blood of his cross, the sacrificial love poured out in Colossians 1 and verse 20. By whom, it says in Romans 5, 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand, and that grace is standing in his Son, who is the grace and truth, the fullness of it all. And when we do, and when we stand, and that goes even into our spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and we stand, we rejoice in what? In hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory where? In tribulation, in the midst of the wilderness. Because we have a door of hope constantly passing through it. Glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Notice that, experience. It's not just knowledge. It's experience and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed. Brings us to a place of a proper standing where Christ himself is not ashamed in Hebrews 2, verse 12. Not ashamed to call us, in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, not ashamed to call us brethren because of the principle of oneness in John 17, 11, 21 and 22. For hope makes not ashamed. Why? Because the love of God is poured out in our minds, and poured out through our emotions by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. And so when we see these things, how precious are they and how phenomenal are they? So when we look back in his dealings with Israel, we see exactly what we already have in Christ now as heavenly people, but ultimately will be fulfilled for God's earthly people, Israel, during the millennial reign, and that's what he is preparing them for when he's already prepared us. But here, in Hosea, the second chapter, again, again in verse 15, it says, And I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor for a door of hope. See the hope there? The hope that will be theirs when Christ finally comes back, deals with all of Israel's enemies and deals with them personally and sets up his kingdom, then they will experience their hope. But we already have the height, the extreme height of God's hope. And how do we see this? And how do we know this? This is Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. Well, verse 26, it says this, even the mystery which has been hid from ages. You see, they didn't know it here in Hosea's time. It wasn't for them. It was for heavenly people, you and I, the church. And so even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now, listen, right now for us is made manifest through his saints, those that are set apart from everything about the old and set into the new image that is theirs in Christ. But now is made manifest his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the guarantee. We have a guarantee of a glorious future 
as heavenly people who will come back with him in Revelations in the 19th chapter, specifically in verses 11 to 16. Watch him deal with the enemy, all of Israel's enemies, as they surround her, deal with them, and as they deal with her, and he will deal with them. That's why it says in Revelations 1, 7, it says, Behold, he comes with the clouds. That's us coming back with him, with a multitude of angels and a multitude of saints. We see that again in Jude, in the book of Jude, verses 10 and 11. We're coming back with thousands upon thousands, it says, of his saints. And we come back to the point where it looks like clouds that block out the sun. And we come back and it says, he, Behold, in Revelations 1-7, he comes with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And they which also pierced him. The, the Jews as a nation that gave him over to be crucified. They, they said as a nation at that time during Jesus' day as he came, for his own, and was rejected in John 1, 11. They said, not this man, in John 18, verse 40, and they said, crucify him, in John 19, and verse 15. But he comes back, and it says, and they, they which also see him, they weep when they see that it's his love. And, and that's what Thomas did. He said, I won't believe it, that he, that he rose from the dead until I see him, he said. In John, the 20th chapter, you see in the beginning, and by the time he met Christ, that's when Christ said, touch me, put your hands here and here in these marks where I was crucified. And Thomas is a picture of doubting Israel. That's what he's a picture of there in the type. But not for us. We're not to doubt his love. He's already our door. He's already our hope. He's already our everything in Colossians 3 and verse 11. Then it says, but every eye will see him and they which also pierced him will wail. They'll weep. But then there's others that will wail because of him in hatred. The fact that he's real and going to do away with all their plans that were never of him based upon their evil design. And we know that what man is like apart from Christ in Genesis 6 and verse 5 and Genesis 8 and verse 21. Only evil continually, not his thoughts. God is not in their thoughts. When we don't have the door of hope in our experience, Christ, then he's not in any of our thoughts in, John, in, in Psalm 10 verse 4. Furthermore, we'll make our thoughts to be equal to him when in reality as, as, as revealed in Psalm 50 and verse 21, that'll be brought out where he says, you thought I was altogether such a one of yourself. It's such, you made me to be like you in your, your own thoughts. When God's only one thought, which is in the multitudes of his love, is his, his precious son. You thought I was like you. He said, I will come and set things in order. And he's going to do that. He set it in order for us already when we received Christ. Now he's going to do that ultimately in his second advent during millennial reign. But here we see very, very clearly the truth here that's brought before us is that it's the Valley of Achor. See, the Valley of Achor, and this is what God is going to bring out. And this is what he's bringing out in his, he's already brought it out to us in his thought. We read the scriptures about who his son is in us and who he's made us to be in the son of his love. He's brought that out to us as heavenly people already 
are already ruling and reigning over everything in him. Now, because we're heavenly, but not on the earth yet until he comes back and we come back with him. But here he's teaching and he's speaking to Israel still to this day. And he, and he speaks to us as his heavenly people. And what he makes clear to us is this, that what is divine, what is, is of this eternity, this eternal life that he has made ours in Christ, in 1 John 5, 11, that eternal life is Christ himself, is never lost, never. What is divine and what is given to us of God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is never lost. It may be covered with the plaster of the world. It may be. It may be. But whatever God has been has written on our flesh, the fleshly tables of our heart, and this is brought out in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, whatever he's written there of the heart will never be erased, never be effaced. And that's the promise. That's ours already in Christ because it's already all the promises for us in Christ right now are yea and amen in 2 Corinthians 1.20. But he's still teaching Israel this. He's still teaching them this. And he's saying to them that you will certainly sing again as in the days of your youth. But here's the thing, and this is true for all of us now experientially. Now that we've been brought and positioned in Christ, this is, this is what our lesson is, is that we must be brought to the valley of Achor. We have to be brought there, to this valley, because Achor is sorrow. That's what that word means, Achor. It's sorrow. But for us, for us, this sorrow is this particular verse that we will read here in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Here it is. And for us in Christ, not yet for Israel, not yet for the nation, no. Not yet on the earth, no. But for us in Christ, yes. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow works repentance, a change of mind. Changing for what? Do we ever change our position? Never. But how about our experience? Yes. And we need the valley of Achor. We need Achor. We need to be brought to the valley of Achor. For if godly sorrow works this change of mind to this salvation that's ours, never to be regretted. That's what it means. When you see repent like it is in the King James, you cross it out because it's never to be regretted. Never to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world works what? Death, separation from him. And that's what he's doing with us. He has to bring us, and when he brings us, and he sets before us, he, he comes before us, and he leads us into the valley, he allures us away, and, and into the valley of Achor. Sorrow, why? To reveal the door of hope. There's a door of hope. And so he brings us to this valley, which is Achor, which speaks of sorrow. And sorrow here, it, what is it? It's morally, and we've said what moral tr morals truly are, by the way. They're supernatural. It's the supernatural spiritual work of Christ in us as individuals so that we function in what is only godly morals because morals are only godly, by the way. So it is morally the death of all that that turned away our hearts from God. 
That's what it speaks of. And that's what he's constantly doing. And this can take place, this can take place without us actually being sorrow, sorrowful. That can take place. It can, without bereavement. But it is renunciation, complete renunciation of everything in sorrow that turned away our hearts from him. And that can happen for us, to us, so easily. But because he loves us so much, he always brings back a proper experience to our true identity as we're positioned in the son of his love. It is a condemning to death the natural attractions which stole our hearts away. Those stole our hearts away from the bright light, the bright line, the bright truth and image in which God has set us. That's what it's done. That's what he's doing. And this is known by the consciousness. Notice, the consciousness of the heart and that what it has when it returns to where it had left off, meaning where it left the freshness of his first love in Revelations 2 and verse 4. And we see, we see, oh, we sorrow. Oh, we used to have these delights and we used to live in the rule and command of all the, the energies of that need that he could only meet. But then he brings us back through a door of hope and there is a sense of renewed connection with that light, which is the purity of our nature because of Christ in us. The late light, as we said, that love is the active energy of God's nature and light is the purity of it. And that's where Christ came out. He came out so that we could get in him and he could bring us back into love, into this eternal embrace of the affectionate love of God that nothing can disturb or distract. And so... That's that light which we once enjoyed and that path where once we just walked on that. There was a path of love in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. It was that path. And then there is not condemnation to who we are in Christ in Romans 8, 1 because there isn't any because of Romans 8, 2 and 3. No, but it is a self-condemnation. It is the self-condemnation and complete repudiation of, listen, the imaginary lying pleasures, the imaginary, listen, the lying, these imaginary delusional pleasures which had diverted our hearts from our pure treasure that Christ is in each of us in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. There must be, and there has to be, and this is the separating, sanctifying process. In Hebrews 4.12, the separation of soul from the spirit. It's a sanctifying, separating process of growing in grace in 2 Peter 3.18 and then having an experiential knowledge which is based upon the reality of our position in Christ of this new nature, this brand new image that's ours in Christ. See, he never changes. He loves us. That Hebrew word, hashak, he loves us with a love that will never let us go. And God forbid that we ever let him go and trade him for some imaginary, delusional, lying pleasure as if it could ever replace his love for us. But no, there has to be in some way through this separating process, through that light, 
that should dawn on us in Ephesians 5 and verse 13. There must be a way of discovering of the worthlessness of everything in contrast to him. And then to set us in the path of life with God once again in our experience. This is the door, the door. And this is the same thing that Peter had to learn. You know, he learned it. You see that in Luke, the fifth chapter. Look at those first eight to ten verses there. You see Peter, he was learning when he had everything that was favorable to him. In that particular scene that's brought out in Luke, the fifth chapter, Christ is in the ship. Peter's doing his will. He's blessed with the abundance of fish, but all those blessings and all those things could not meet the need of his soul in the presence of God. And there was only one who did and who could meet it, who thus proved his superiority, and this is what he's proving to us constantly, his superiority over everything gratifying to a man. Everything. And this is what he's bringing us back to. It's what he had to bring Peter back to. He had to secure Peter's heart so that his heart would be overwhelmed with his love for him and made more in Romans 8 verse 37 than a conqueror. And this is what allowed him. He brought his ship to land. That's what Peter did. Finally, he brought his ship to land, loaded with those blessings. But you know what he did? He left it all and followed him because it was worthless without him. He left it all. And it's not an easy thing. No, it's not, because on the contrary, we, we, when we experience the moment of moral death, when we're in the valley of Achor, when there's sorrow, because then one denounces what? As vain, all that caused his heart to swerve from this incredible love. And oh, how we see what it's done with us. And oh, how we see what it's done with those that we love and that we know. And we see the devastating effects. In John 10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He's an abuser. He abuses people. God gave me this thought. He abuses the whole world as he deceives them in Revelations 12, 9. But the greatest target that he has, the ones that he wants to abuse the most, are those that Christ, that are Christ, that his love has won. He wants to abuse and give us everything under the sun for that abuse to keep us in a state of bondage and ruin. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and experience the abundance of that love life in that brand new image. And oh, how he hates the image of God, the image of Christ recreated brand new in an individual. Oh, how he hates that. And so you and I must see, and you see the net. You saw the net there in Luke, the fifth chapter. It was filled in six and seven of the uh, verses in that fifth chapter. It was so full. They had, to, they had to drag it in with two ships. They had to do it. But you and I, just like Peter, must see, must we either must see the net in the sight of everything which has wings. What does that mean? Well, look at what it says in Proverbs 1, verse 17. In vain is spread the net in the sight of anything which has wings. 
easily to go away. Those joys we think that we can have apart from him. In Proverbs 1, verse 17, if we see the net, if we see it, if we see the snare, in Proverbs 29 and 25, if we see that net, if we see the snare, then we're not taken in it. But if we're taken in it, and this unfortunately, for me and many others, is the way that's most common with us, we are drawn away by the false glitter of present things. Present things. And then we are often, what are we like? We're like a lion that's stuck in the net. We can't get ourselves out. And then we start to depend on the wearing of circumstances and situations and just do the best we can to get by day to day and think that's the normal Christian life. No. It is, it, but here's the beauty of it. It is very gracious of the Lord when he gives us desires after himself in, the, in our soul. For surely, somehow or other, you and I will be satisfied. We'll be satisfied. We will. But you know, the enemy comes in and accuses the believer. He accuses. He abuses. To accuse means to abuse, by the way. That's what it means. He wants to abuse us to abuse us, and then if he can't fully try to get a hold of us, he tries to attenuate us with those, with that abusing accusation. What does it mean to attenuate? This is what it means. To weaken or reduce in force. The force of what? His love for us. To make, and, and, and to do away with the intensity of his love for us. That eternal effect, that quantity that value of that love, and then to wear us out. You know, it says in Daniel 7 and verse 25, he speaks great words against the Most High. Who does he speak them to? Him? No, he speaks great words against the Most High to you and I to wear us out. He can't wear out God. He's immovable. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. But boy, he does with us. To what? To make thin, to wear us out, to make us slender or worn out, to tapering finally and gradually to a narrow, very thin extremity, just to give it up, to give it up. He wants to, through abusing us and promising us all these delusionary pleasures, he wants to do that. The reason is, is because he wants our souls not to cling to Christ in Hebrews 4.12, not to be separated from these illusionary, imaginary pleasures. Good gracious, when are we ever going to get that one straight? That we need to do that at any time in our Christian life. When, when are we going to get it? When am I going to get it is what I'm saying. He wants our soul to cleave to the meaningless because there's no meaning or value outside of Christ. At any time, we are never not the body of Christ. He is never not our head. Never. Never. So he wants us, the enemy, through abuse, through accusation, through these illusionary pleasures and lusts that are never satisfied, they're insatiable, he wants us to live, then finally, to live in a self-expression, which is, has to do with his lie, <laughs> and, and then to live a life in a lie with illusionary pleasures without any meaning whatsoever. 
no meaning, no understanding, no true identity, lost in our experience of the perfection of the image of Christ in us and us in him. No meaning, but there's no meaning without a personal, individual, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So this can lead multitudes of Christians, even with knowledge, but knowledge without Christ is meaningless. Boy, I've seen that one. I learned that in the 70s and 80s, you know. There was a lot of knowledge going around, a lot of knowledge. But I got to tell you, and for my own life, it was meaningless without an intimate experience of God's love, without that. I thank God for this verse. I thank God for the truth of it. Because when we don't know, when we don't experience what is ours, through, through not having it taught or through not submitting to what is taught, we miss it, we can't know it, we can't experience it, and all that is left is a mind that lives in illusionary pleasures, trying to get through a day. Because without a spiritual mind of discernment in the wisdom that Christ is in us, what do we live? Our circumstances and situations become our guide, and we feel that, and people settle. Christians settle for that's, that's the best that it can be, which is the worst without him, experientially. And so they don't, we don't have any wisdom of discernment, even for the practical details of life. Even for that. So we just live as earthly people. That's all. Just from one thing to the next. From one thing to the next. Let's take some time out. Let's take some time out and do something. And because we're all together as Christians, we'll call that still fellowship. I tell you it's not. By the grace of God in my own conviction, in my own conviction. <laughs> and again, when, when the enemy comes in and he tries to, with his accusations and abuse, to attenuate, get us to live in some kind of thing where he can attenuate us, and we, we knew what that meant, we, we heard it, to weaken or reduce and force, right? He gets us to live in that that's indolent. Indolent. What's that? Having or showing a disposition to avoid exertion. I don't want to learn. I don't want to constantly submit. I want times where I think I need to escape. I think I need to go to a certain place to find joy and, and to try and get away for a while and call it fellowship. No. It's to become spiritually slothful. You see that in Ephesians 5, 13 and 14. It's causing little, I want to live in a life as a Christian that causes little or no pain. I don't want that. I want to live this inactive Christian life. Just live relatively benign. You know, even in the word pathology and medicine, you know what that means? Slow to heal. That's what it means, pathology. Even in medical term, pathology, it means slow to heal. You know, in Psalm 107, verse 20, it says he sent his word, that's Christ, and he healed them, and he delivered them from all their self-destruction, all their illusionary, delusional, imaginary pleasures. Gosh, to think that we need something like that. 
Help us, Lord. But I will close with this, and I thank God for it. I thank God with you, too. I thank God I can thank God, and I thank God I can be with people that thank him. And I mean it, too, and have fellowship. Because the expression of a proper fellowship intimately with an individual with Christ is called thankfulness. I can always know. I can always know when he means the most to me. I meant the most to him. I can always know that he means the most to me. Boy, he can show you that too. He can show you what you have by sending you to someone, oh my God, that does not have it, but it's still theirs. And so in Hebrews 2.10, I love this verse, for it became him, oh, look at that in the original, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. Now, he's done that with us positionally. Don't you want to experience it? Don't I want to experience it? Don't I want to experience it with you? Many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He's the captain. Listen to me, and, and I'm listening to you with you when I say that. He's the captain. That's not the captain of a baseball team or a football team. <laughs> Those aren't captains. They can, they can express the captain, but the, he is our captain. That word captain in Hebrews 2.10 is archigos. Archigos, and it means a chief leader. It's from the Greek word arche, which means a commencement or the very beginning of everything. <laughs> That's in John 1, 1, in the beginning, the Word, the Word with God, the Word was with God, the Word is God, and the Word was with God. And we see that clearly. He's our beginning. Thank you, God. And he's our, he's our eternal beginning and our eternal end. That's eternal life. He is chief, but he's chief in what? In various applications of what? Order. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. He does all things decently and in what? Christ, in order, his only order. And in time, <laughs> notice, in time, precious, redeeming the time. In Ephesians 5, verse 16, because the days are evil and act of opposition to God's divine good. In 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine, the time is short. Even if you're married, live like that. The time is short. Put Christ first, then he'll put your marriage where it belongs. Period. Focus on Christ first, then he'll give you proper focus on your family. You can see that in, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, right into the fourth chapter. Then it gets into relationships in the fifth chapter, and part of it in the sixth, and then right into spiritual warfare in the sixth chapter, the end of it. He is our leader in order in time, in place, our proper place and position, proper experience, and in rank. He's our beginning. He's the corner in Psalm 118, verse 22 of the foundation. He's the cornerstone and tried in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, and again in Psalm 118, verse 22. He is the first. Revelations 1, 8, 11, and 17. And Revelations 22 and 13, Jesus said, I am the, the what? The Alpha 
and the omega, the beginning and the end. What's he teaching? He is the eternal is. (laughs) And we have him. And he has us. We have him because he got us through everything that he's done. And so as we close this, we see he's the first. He's the firstborn of every creation, of every creature in Christ. In Romans 8 and verse 29, we see it crystal clear. So He's the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 23. He's the first fruits of what he's accomplished. as brought out beautifully in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter in those 12 verses. And, and again, he is the magistrate. He's the power. He's the principality. He's the one principle, the one rule, <laughs> the one guide. And that word is from the Greek word ago, A-G-O. It's a primary verb. Properly, it means to lead. We cannot lead ourselves. It means to be led. And by implication, to bring. Remember how he had to bring them into the wilderness we saw in, in Hosea 2 and verse 14? Yes, to bring, to bring us. He brings us. When sometimes he drives us through these illusionary, imaginary pleasures, and and they're designed in this sense that God uses to bring us to the end of ourselves, like Paul, like when he was Saul and he met Christ. He was driven with anger and irritation and suspicion in his fleshly life as he's trying to serve God without Christ, without a captain, without an archegos. And so what happened? He met Christ. Because, and then what? And then he, he brings to pass in time and he induces us so that he can carry us and keep us and lead us and keep us open to his love. And finally, it's that Greek word, akomai. And it means, it's the middle, it's the middle voice participating. Remember, the middle voice, the passive voice is all grace. We don't do anything, we just receive it. And of course we do. Why? Because we have a free will, which he never violates. Okay? He engineers circumstances and situations, so we go positive with that free will and reach out to him and take it. Take Christ in our experience. And so this is what it is. It's the middle. This archomai is the middle of arche, of arco, and it means this. It's the implication of precedence or precedence. Notice that? Precedence. Oh, do we see the anticipation of his love? Even in Hosea 2, 14 and 15, as he brings us through the word to cut cut it out what doesn't belong there. Do we see the anticipation of his love? His prevenient grace. Him acting in his love through grace when our will has not even been brought there yet because he has to bring us there and give us the option. What an amazing thing. And so that's what it means to commence in order of time. And then finally it's arco. It means to be first. And Christ is first in power and in government rule. He rules and reigns over us with his love. And when it is his love, can anything disturb us or distract us? Can anything? When we function in his presence? No, we can't. 
and thank God for us with these paths. Thank you, and I thank God with you that even when we fail in 1 John 1, 9, confession is on our side. When we do, completion is on God's side in terms of removing anything that got in the way of that precious love, that precious, incredible love. And Father, thank you so much this morning for your precious love and for what you've given us in Christ, what you've made ours to be in the Son of your love, everything that he is and everything that he did to you in terms of propitiation for us as a substitute so that he could reconcile us. And now that we're reconciled positionally, he constantly has to bring us back and and bring us and renew our minds in Ephesians 4 and verse 23 so that we experience what love has already accomplished about us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.